With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. The Athletic. Hello, I'm Dan Bardell. And I'm Flo Lloyd-Hughes. And welcome to the Athletic Football Podcast. It's Wednesday, which means we'll be picking out some of the best work available on The Athletic right now and putting the authors under the spotlight. couple of moments there's a very short statement on the FAW website saying they extend their condolences and sympathies to his to his family and uh, hope that uh, the family's privacy will be respected at this time so it's um, tragic news to say the very least uh, Gary Speed a former captain of Wales 85 caps and the national manager who was doing such a good job to rebuild Welsh football has died I could stand here another 10 minutes and talk about Gary Speed I just want to give him the accolade that he deserves. He'll be a miss. He'll be a miss in the dressing rooms. He'll be a miss in the training room. He'll be a miss in the restaurants. He'll be a miss on the planes, on the buses. In every concept uh, of that boy coming in to play football for Newcastle and departing, he will be a miss. This week, senior writer and lifelong Newcastle supporter George Colkin joins us to help mark the 10th anniversary of the death of Gary Speed as we reflect on a very moving article about Speedo written by his friend and our very own Alan Shearer. Yes, and we'll attempt to bring that article to life as you'll actually get to hear from many of the people who Alan Shearer interviewed for the piece, including Duncan Ferguson, Gordon Strachan, Big Sam and many others. We're also going to spend a bit of time talking about Eddie Howe's start to life on Tyneside, the money and the very real fear of relegation. So George is joining us for that chat too. But before we chat to George, Dan, a big night, the glamour of it all in Paris. Lionel Messi winning a seventh Ballon d'Or. Um, pretty ridiculous. How do you feel about that? Do you think he deserved it? Do you think someone else deserved it? Because I I thought it should have been Mo Salah or, or Roman Lewandowski, to be honest, if I'm going to be stingy I, about it. I think it, Lewandowski but... must just think, what have I got to do? To get some What's recognition. <laughs> he, I, he literally <laughs> couldn't do any. I suppose he could have won the Champions League, but that's not, that's not all down to him. But he must look at it and think, what more do I have to do? Because the goal records of Ronaldo and Messi over the years have been a joke and you know that's why they've won so many Ballon d'Ors his levels are the same in terms of goal output so he must be sat there just thinking I might as well retire it's it's never going to happen for me yeah I think Mm. he should have won if I'm being perfectly honest Lewandowski yeah, I, I couldn't believe. It. I mean, I couldn't believe that Mo Salah finished seventh in that in that lineup. I think Jorginho obviously winning the Euros, winning the Champions League. He finished, I think, third in the end, was it? Um, and he, I think, deserved to be higher up on that list. For me, it would have been Lewandowski, Salah, and Jorginho top three. I don't think Ronaldo should have even been in that list. Um, it's a funny one because I've been saying this to a couple of people because Alexia Pateas won the Women's Award from Barcelona. And before, there always used to be this perception that 
the the women's award was all about brand and name uh, and less about on the pitch and the men's award was actually you know more of a a pro- proper sort of assessment of on pitch performance and it feels like this year that's flipped it feels like the messy messy win is so much more about brand messy obviously that copa america win was huge but his move to paris you know has been a complete rebrand for him and it feels like the women's award actually is for once actually about footballing ability it's it's a strange one for me i just yeah i was really surprised to be honest it kind of feels, Flo, like it's an award for as a tribute to Messi's last season at Barcelona in some ways, rather than what he actually did. Barcelona have been have been miles off it, and you know Messi's obviously the best the best player in the world. I completely get that, but in terms of the last twelve months, he hasn't reached the levels of Lewandowski. Yeah, it feels like a very romantic mm. prize, doesn't it? And I also think the fact that it's France football that award it. In Paris, he's playing for PSG. I think so much is wrapped up in that for me. I feel like it is a very romantic idea of who should win this award. And I also just feel like I wish people would not move on from Messi because that's harsh because obviously you don't want to move on from one of the best players that's ever played football. But I feel like we should be looking forward. And I feel like when you look down that list of names, there's a lot of other players that I think you should be getting that global recognition now because yes, Messi's achieved so much and probably will continue to achieve a little bit more. Mm. I was really hoping Emmy Martinez might win the Yashin award as well after helping Argentina win the Copa America. I thought he might do a bit better than sixth best goalkeeper in the world, but Donnarama has obviously won it. You know, he had a pretty good time in the summer in the Euros, didn't he? So, so I do understand it. But for me, even having a Villa player involved in the discussions was was, was a new thing because we haven't had anyone ever in this this kind of these kind of awards in the time I've, I've supported the club. So that that was nice to say. But yeah, I was hoping he might finish a bit higher than sixth. To read Alan Shearer's full article with George and so much more, visit The Athletic and subscribe today for just £3.33 a month for 12 months. You'll enjoy typically great analysis, in-depth features from the very best football writers around, as well as ad-free versions of all our podcasts. Go to theathletic.com forward slash football pod to take advantage of that offer. That's theathletic.com forward slash football pod. And if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review. George, welcome to the podcast. We should start by saying you were involved in helping Alan Shearer put this great article together. It's it's a brilliant and emotional read marking the 10th anniversary of Gary Speed's passing. You're a Newcastle fan yourself, of course. Just to start with, what did Gary Speed mean to you as a supporter of the club? Well, he stands for Newcastle in much better times, obviously. Um, that's one thing, um, I guess, sort of synonymous really with... Alan Shearer um, and and sort of players of that caliber, but was also around the team uh, when they got back into the Champions League under Sir Bobby Robson, sort of leading them up from the bottom of the table up. And yeah, just a kind of brilliant, solid character, the, exactly the kind of person you want in your team. You know, seven, eight out of ten, that sort of player. You just knew what you were going to get get from him. He played sort of centrally, central midfield on the left-hand side. He had that brilliant left foot. He had that kind of wonderful characteristic knack of getting into the box, scoring goals. And it's actually a point that Sam Ardice makes in, in this piece that we did that, you know, I think now we we label players, we label midfield players either attacking or defending or they're, you know, something in the middle. Gary Speed had everything. Yeah. He was able to put his foot in. Um, he could make interceptions, he could tackle, but he was also brilliant going forward and had a great left foot. But just I just associate him with Newcastle in better, better, happier times. 
thinking of him as a player is certainly some of the formative memories I had of of Premier League football, of just watching football in, in general. He was part of such an iconic Newcastle United side and obviously Alan Shearer was part of that alongside him. And with the interviews that you did with Shearer, obviously speaking to so many people he knows so well, what was it like hearing these conversations and is there anything that particularly surprised you about what you heard in those? I mean, there were little bits of, of stories that I wasn't sort of aware of before and Alan wasn't aware of the, you know, the the fact that John Carver, who'd who coached Gary at Newcastle under Bobby, um, then went back to work for Gary at Sheffield United as as his um, assistant. And very quickly, obviously, Gary moved on to to the Wales job. Um, and he felt so bad about that that he offered to pay up John's contract at Sheffield Sheffield United when he got the when he got the push, which I do think sort of sums him up as a as a as a person. I was also kind of quite interested in those the stories of his ferocity because I think that's something that's kind of quite important to remember. I'm guilty of the same thing about Sir Bobby. I'm a patron of his foundation that he has up here, and I think it's kind of very easy to to romanticise these figures. And you know, Bobby was a wonderful person and a, and a brilliant football person, very funny and uh, and full of dignity and all that sort of stuff. So it's right we remember that side. But I always say that you don't kind of get to do what he did without having really sharp elbows and without being incredibly tough. You know, one of the first things that Bobby did as manager was physically fought um, two players at Ipswich Town because he had to do that to impose his authority. And Gary was an, you know was a fearsome character um people talk about his professionalism and he was he was ultra he was ultra professional but if things didn't didn't go well if people weren't living up to his standards he made them he made sure they knew about it and it you know i think that's a that's an important quality to remember but the you know i think the thing that stood out I'm slightly contradicting myself is that everybody remembers his smile and everybody remembers his stupid laugh. He had a very, he had a kind of ridiculous high pitched squeaky laugh that made everybody laugh when they heard it. And he was known for smiling, which is, you know, it's, it's, it's very poignant when you think about obviously how his life ended, that perhaps that smile sort of hid something. Um, we don't know those, those answers, but yeah, that, that, um, that's what really kind of stood out for me, I think. He's one of those guys that just seemed to be good at everything as well, even like being a pundit. He was very, very good at that. He was making a real name for himself as a manager. He was an exceptional footballer who could do a bit of everything, like you say. But it is that that sadness of, of not knowing what was going on in his head that kind of stays with us now. But I really, what I liked about the piece was it did just focus on Gary Speed, the person, the, the guy that all those players and managers knew, the people that worked with him. I, I thought it was a really amazing piece, George. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I th- it was difficult. Um, sort of, Alan and I spoke about it beforehand about how we do it and how we approach it because, I sort of, wanted to, I guess, sort of reclaim Gary as a player, you know, a bit as opposed to sort of how his story, how his story ended, which obviously we can't, you know, absolutely can't ignore and gloss over. But he was a fantastic footballer, and he was an uplifting presence in so many people's lives. It's quite funny. Um, sort of everybody we talked to spoke about how gorgeous he was. Gordon Strachan said that his uh, his wife Leslie used to um, used to drool over Gary, and not you know not just because of he could have been the next James Bond, but because he was also a, a gentleman. And uh, yeah, no, he was. He was a very very attractive figure, and he he did have that sense of 
reliability that I mentioned earlier. You know, Bobby Bobby Robson talked about his blue chip players and uh, at Newcastle, and Gary was one of those. And um, in the, in that piece, John Carver talks about Bobby saying, you know, it's a cliche, I know that, but you know, he is the he was one of those archetypal people you'd want beside you in the trenches um, if you ever had to do something sort of so um, so horrible because he would be there and he would stand next to you and he would fight for you and. Um, you know that's a brilliant that's a brilliant quality to have. You talk about reclaiming Gary Speed, the player as well. He he's a guy that achieved so so much because he, he played for his boyhood team Everton that he would have wanted to do his whole life. He achieved that. He captained his country. He was so so proud to be a Welshman and play for his country. He managed his country. Now this is a guy that ticked off a lot of dreams that he would have had as a kid. Yeah, and he won the title at Leeds, and yeah. um, in the season before the Premier League started, and you know Leeds, that Leeds story, you know, is a very important one in their in their history, and that you know that midfield that they had at Leeds, Strachan, Speed, Batty, McAllister, you know, that has to be up there with best, you know, the best midfields in that in that club's history, and that's saying something. Bearing in mind what they they did in the in the seventies too. And he was the Gordon Strachan. Gordon Strachan said, "It's basically he's very funny." He sort of said, "Oh, you know, the, the three of us, we were we were horrible bastards. There was us three, and then there was Gary, and Gary was the nice one, and he was really he was like too nice. Except he calmed the rest of us down. You know, he calmed the rest of us down. Um, and he, he he sort of said in, in that season that they won the title, it kind of crept up on them a little bit. They were they were in there and they were hanging around, and and suddenly they kind of." you know, they found themselves crossing the line. And although he, he kind of railed against that culture of people being described as winners, he said that that did allow someone like Gary to to kind of blossom, to have belief in himself. And um, yeah, it didn't work out brilliantly for him at Everton, but certainly, I mean, I think at all, all the clubs he played for, they would, they would talk about his character and his resilience and as well as his, as well as his talent, you know, of course. And what's his legacy at both Newcastle United and Wales as well? Obviously, he was he was manager at the time when when he died. But what 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 do you think he he's left at, at both those setups with some of the players who you know like me or probably a similar age would have grown up watching him and know how much a giant he was of both those both those clubs and teams? Yeah, I mean it's a difficult question in terms of management. I think he's sort of seen. I mean. You know, we'll never know. We'll never really know uh, what he could have done and what he could have achieved because he was really on the start of that um, part of his career. But I think he's widely seen as putting the building blocks in place that Chris Coleman then built on, albeit in incredibly difficult circumstances. I mean, he says in this piece how he came very close to walking away because it was so difficult for him. He was replacing his... Um, his close friend, the whole squad was in mourning. The you know the country really was in mourning when he took over, and he said that 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 kind of twelve eighteen months was his worst spell in football, worst spell in football management. And he was he was trying to sort of please everybody. He was trying to be Gary effectively, and it wasn't until he um, sort of took his own path and tried to do things his own way that really he had success. But what he built on was. Uh, you know, results under Gary had had turned, um, and they were in a good position. But what Gary did do was impose that sense of professionalism that he carried with him. And suddenly, Wales weren't sort of second class citizens in terms of facilities, in in terms of training ground, in terms of the hotels they stayed at. Suddenly, you know, it was about that sort of uh, taking away that excuses culture. 
and Chris says that that was incredibly that was incredibly helpful to him. And I think the same thing at Newcastle. I mean, it's it's so difficult because you know players leave and um, and clubs change, and you know we've seen a very different Newcastle in the last 14, 14 years, for example. But again, I think it was that sense of of professionalism and not accepting second best either from the club or from his teammates. There's a, you know, there's a funny anecdote in there. It's unbelievable when you think about it now that Lamana Lua was allowed to leave Newcastle on loan to Portsmouth. Absolutely fair enough. But then played against Newcastle in a match and the club hadn't prevented that from happening. Now that was at a time when that was able to happen and he scored. He scored in the 89th minute and Newcastle were winning a game and they, they ended up drawing a match. They finished fifth fifth that season, and it was Bobby's last full season. It was Gary's Gary's last bit of the season. He went absolutely spare in the dressing room. He was throwing stuff around the place. He was spitting and spluttering in John Carver's face. He says he couldn't believe that the club had allowed something so unprofessional to happen, and that you know that summed him up. He was a he was a very very uh, open, approachable, likable, personable person who didn't make enemies in football, which is you know, which is pretty unique. But he was driven by that sense of doing things right as well. And heaven help you if you got if you got in the way of that. Yeah, I imagine he wouldn't have liked Luar Luar celebration that day either no. by, by the sounds of it. An incredible player, and he sounds like an absolutely incredible man as well. Without further ado, would you do us the honour of introducing this tribute, please, George? Yes, that's a, that's a huge pleasure. Thank you. Um, so here we are. Here are some clips from the interviews uh, Alan did um, with players that Gary Speed played with and Sam Allardyce, his former manager of Bolton Wanderers. Hey, can you hear us now? Yeah, I can hear you. Chris Coleman first met Speeds, as he calls him, when they were both 10 and playing Welsh schools football. They competed with each other and then grew and played together for underage Wales teams, then the first team. He seemed to know a bit more than the rest of us anyway. When he was 10, he was he had a beautiful left foot, but he was intelligent as well as a player. And um, he played centre midfield, i never forget. Number 10, Mopper Jet Black Air. Um, <laughs> and he just, he just stood out, you know, he could... I remember my dad saying to me after after the game, we were on my, my dad never used to get carried away. Um, you know, we go around Wales playing. We were a really good Swansea team, but he never got carried away with my dad. But when we played D side and we lost, we lost to them 3-1, I think, at home. And he said after the game, he said at number 10 um for D side, he said that's he's the best you come across in this country. And he was right, he was he was just ahead of everybody, guys, you know, at that age. And then when I got to meet him. You know, I was uh, I was a little bit in awe of him because he just had this magnetism, and you know, I think he carried that through the rest of his life. He was just his, his attitude towards life, and certainly towards football. He loved his football, and he loved having a laugh. He just had that real weird, high pitched laugh. You know, he, he laughed like a girl. <laughs> you remember that? Yeah. He was like he was like that when he was young. You know, when I used to we used to like making him laugh. So we could hear him laugh, which then used to make us laugh. Um, you know, yeah, yeah. You're just drawn to him, you know, from a from a from a young age, really. Gary signed for Leeds as a 14-year-old on the same day as Simon Grayson. Schoolboy forms at first, and then as apprentices. Yeah, I think we were on the bus most days. We we're in separate digs, a little bit uh, about two or three miles apart. 
he always tells me that I got the better deal because I was in a nice five-bedroom detached house and he was in a slightly different house <laughs> compared to where I was. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, we'd still get the same route of the bus home and uh, and then obviously you get to sort of um, in amongst apprentice years where court cases were quite something that was a normal thing that happened when boot room shenanigans going round and uh, don't think we'd get away with a lot of the things that uh, went back in them days. So one lad got tied to the goalposts up at Ellen Road and he got like the deep heat everywhere and like big horse pipe out. And I think Speedo was in amongst all that, to be fair, because like I said, he was a bit of a dark horse with stuff. Both you and I knew how special he was. Uh, did he show all those all those traits as a youngster, as a 16-year-old? I think I think in terms of his personality, I think that came later on the more sort of established he got. He was like... Like a lot of us, we were a little bit coming from not the bright city lights of a Leeds, we from, from rural areas that um, you were, we were both probably quite shy, but confident in your ability as well. And uh, I think that was something that he never, you can never take that away from Gary, that he was confident in his ability, he was strong and he was powerful. He, he had that natural left foot that made him look probably better than some players that had the right foot um, and versatile could play left left wing or play centre midfield where he played quite a bit. And he had a, such a humble background with Roger and Carol. His mum and dad were brought up in the right manner and he was very respectful of everybody. As you said, I don't think through his career anybody would have a bad word to say about him, both on the pitch and off the pitch. And uh, even though he was a, such a nice lad, he was that competitive edge, no matter what we were doing. Um whether it was playing cricket in the corridor, playing two-touch, playing, doing this, that and the other. You always wanted to win and that's something that you have ingrained as you when you want to be a professional footballer. Henry floats it in towards Speed! 2-0! Gary Speed! That's when he's so dangerous, floating at the far post. I think one of the big things that from younger days was that he had this great leap on him, didn't he? As, and yeah. as a young, it wasn't something that just came later on in his career. He had it, which was a fantastic asset to have. Um, I think at 17, 18, you can never say, right, he's definitely going to play, what was it, 700 games or something like that, mm. whatever numbers it was. But you knew that he was going to have a massive, um, a, a really good career. I think it's like anybody, when you get to 17, 18, you're, you're waiting for that opportunity to have a break in the first team. And, and hopefully then your career will take you where you wanted to get to. And I, I made my debut probably six, eight months before him. And... Um, I had to keep the ball for Leeds and he went on and played a lot more than me. Certainly wasn't begrudging him any any um, any success that he had because I know how hard he'd worked to to get to the first team and how, how dedicated he was as well for all the sort of um, things that he did away from football. He, he trained like a demon, which he did every day as a, as a senior professional as well. And that's why he had the career. To pass 840 first-team appearances as a midfielder, 535 of them in the Premier League, is astonishing, and his stint as a player was bookended by two important figures, Sam Allardyce at Bolton, and back where it started, Gordon Strachan at Leeds. But what I did see, and I knew right away, what he had was a humility. And and people tend to forget that's a wonderful thing, because if you have a humility, then... You'll always be able to look at yourself and say, I can improve if you have that humility. It's different. If you've not got it and you think you're a wonderful player, how you got to improve? Well, he had that He had that humility. So sometimes you can take guys who are uh, uh, as good as Gary, but they didn't have that humility. So his progress from where he was when we first seen the youth team to where he ended up playing an international level and winning 
leagues and things like that and playing with you guys was incredible. And I've seen other people on the same level, but didn't have that humility. So when you speak to them, they don't improve. So Gary actually was from, you know, the ugly duckling type thing and going straight up here to being the swan. Well, people mm. thought they were swans in early doors and, yeah, no, really, duck. <laughs> <laughs> I mean that that sure. I'm sure you you knew what uh, how much you sort of meant to him and how, how much he looked up to you and admired you for for <laughs> what 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 you did uh, for him in terms of. I don't know whether you knew or not, but he was he was always distracted this and distracted that, and, and <laughs> yeah. for for him to look. I don't know. I, I think if I worked out right, you were about thirty. What were you, thirty three or thirty four when you won the league? So obviously I saw him after that. So it was always did the banana or extracted the tablets or extracted yeah. it. So yeah, it did yeah. all that. So you were you were a huge influence on that because whatever whatever you did, and he he was he was doing as well because it was you. It was Gary Mack, and then of course the career that he had. Yeah. So you you rubbed off on him a, a, an awful lot. It was easy to talk to him because I changed beside him right next to him next year. So it was easy to have the conversation. You know, it's like an address and someone's away over there. He's sitting saying we get a bond with somebody that's close to you. As mm. I say to you, I'll even love sitting beside him because he was a great audience. You know, it doesn't matter what I say. <laughs> did that ju- uh, did that just happen, Strack, or did did he sort of make a point of coming? I don't know how we got sitting together. I really do mm. not know how we got sitting together. And um, and it was great because I used to vet all his uh, mail because he was such a good looking fellow. All these girls would send all this stuff in, you know, and I'd vet and go, "That's not for you." That's for an older person. <laughs> that's, that's for an older person. Um, so uh, I used to think, complete gentleman off the pitch. I mean, he's one of these guys you think, I wish I could be like you. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Everton had won the FA Cup in 1995 and finished sixth in the Premier League the season before Gary joined. He and Duncan Ferguson ended his first season as joint top scorers with 11 goals in all competitions. But it was a struggle, 15th in the table and the departure of Joe Royal as manager. Howard Kendall replaced Joe and his relationship with Speedo was less easy. Why was that? Why was it difficult? Do you think? Can you can you remember why it was difficult? Probably, probably because of the, the other eight players were shite. The other, the other nine players were shite. Only two good players in the fucking team. That's fancy mine. But what I do remember is his first season. I remember his first game playing for Everton because obviously it was, it was his boyhood club and he captained the club and he scored his first goal in his debut for Everton. And it was only, I think it was 1996. And why it was such a, it was Alan's debut as well for Newcastle. Yeah. He was in, he was on the pitch and he was captain his, his, his boyhood team. And Gary was captain his boyhood team. You know what I mean? So I, 
when, when obviously when Gary passed away, you start to think of these things, didn't you? And I remember that, that that's what I go back to really is that day really. Gary on that day scoring for his team, you know what I mean? And in fact, I set the goal up for him, you know what I mean? I, I, I won the flick on and he comes from anywhere, Gary, first of fucking 40 yards to get by me, gets the flick mm. on and throws his first goal for Everton, you know what I mean? On that day, remember it, Alan? There are a fair few black and white striped shirts on the edge of the penalty area here, and one of them is speed! And it fairly ripped into the net via the bar! John Carver assisted Sir Bobby at Newcastle while Gary was there. He would come out with things and you'd think, he's definitely going to be a coach when, he, when he's finished mm-hmm. playing. Because he understood the game so well. Um, and it was good that he did go into it. But I knew from, from the early days when I first met him that he was going to go on and be a manager because of how intelligent, of how uh, precise he was, how we used to talk about the game. And, and it, it was pretty obvious to me. And was he, was he as re- relentless as a... Uh, as a manager, as he was there absolutely. in terms of first absolutely. in, last away, hard hard work, every, everything else. Yeah. He, he used to get in there at seven in the morning um, and, and he'd be stuck in his office. I would get in about eight. We'd have a little staff meeting. We'd organise a training. Once training had finished, he'd disappear into the video room, sometimes to play his guitar and try and <laughs> sing. As it happens yeah. in Sheffield United, the guy who was our analyst, Mikey Allen, could play the guitar better than Gary. Um, so, so every now and again, I would go looking for. He wouldn't him. have liked that, would he? No, no. And he was definitely a better singer. And uh, and 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 every now and again, he would go missing. So I'd go looking for him. And and when I couldn't find him, I knew where he'd be. He'd be in the room, either watching videos or play, playing his guitar. Most most of the time, it was watching videos. Thankfully, Sam Allardyce. The reason he was available, um, two thousand four, when we signed him. Uh, me speaking to Freddie Shepherd and saying, um, what are you doing with Gary Speed? Now you've signed Nicky Butt, like you mean? And he said, well, mm. it'll probably be a time for us to move him on, like, you know. So I thought, well, let's have a go at this. And um, and I think that uh, Freddie wanted uh, 750 grand at the time, which was, for me, uh, even at 34, was, was, was going to be a snip. The problem with me was convincing my chairman at the time that we pay 750 grand for a 34 year old. And of course, um, uh, me and my, um, all the guys that ran uh, the Wanderers with me at the time in terms of all that, all that information we could give, we laid down the facts for uh, Phil Garside at the time, which showed that uh, Speedo was probably playing as a 26 year old. He'd not only played in most of the league games at Newcastle, he played, I think, in the I think they were in the Champions League that year in the cup matches. He was playing for Wales. So he'd probably completed something like 40 games that year, maybe even more. So he had no argument against that. And of course, the, the main problem then was can we persuade Gary to come to Bolton? And at that stage, we were pretty we were pretty well versed with a lot of quality, quality players at the time, like you know, world-class York IF, Akotcha, people mm. like that, you know what I mean? So it wasn't yeah. too difficult to persuade him to come along and join us because we were on the way, we were on the way up. Chris Coleman again. But you wouldn't associate him with something, with an act like that, so it was really unbelievable, really. Um, and when I came back from Greece, came back to Wales and um, I remember doing the press conference. It was all very surreal, and I, I it was I had a huge. Oh, what can I, how can I put it? I just felt guilty that you know I was I was there in this position where he was, and he should have still been there. He was doing a really good job, uh, and then he wasn't. 
You're listening to the Athletic Football Podcast, and we'll talk a bit about Newcastle with George Culkin after the short break. Stay with us. This is a paid advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Do you ever get that feeling that you need to get something off your chest? We all carry around different stresses, big and small. And when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe place to release and discuss those thoughts and feelings and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a licensed therapist. And if things don't click, you can switch to someone new at any time with no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to this podcast, you can get 10% off your first month of online therapy by heading to betterhelp.com slash athleticfootball. That's betterhel dot com slash athleticfootball with no spaces. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. George, we're recording ahead of what feels like a pivotal game this week for Newcastle. I mean, every game is, is so crucial at the moment because they're yet to win a game, but they play Norwich on Tuesday night. They're three points adrift of Norwich who are struggling anyway. What, what do you think the situation is? Have you seen any positive green shoots off the back of what Tyndall and, and Howell have already sort of done with the team or, or do you think they're still a long way off? Yeah, um, it's a good question. I was there for the Brentford match, um, just sitting in the stands actually. And um, although that was sort of seen as a big uptick in terms of performance and it was certainly a kind of entertaining enterprising game I came away from that feeling pretty depressed I have to say because I felt that was the pivotal moment I felt that was albeit Eddie Howe wasn't in the stadium because of because of having COVID at that point um I just felt like that was the moment they had to move as you say they they play Norwich this evening, so it's difficult to sort of uh, to, to sort of second guess what happens there, except to say that this uh, does feel to me like make or break moment. It's it's home to home to Norwich, then home to Burnley, and if they're not going to pick up points there and re- you know realistically victories, when do they do it? They've got a horrific December. They do have still have to play Man City twice and Liverpool twice, and you're getting to the point where. You know, points per game ratio is is climbing very, very high. More importantly than that, though, is the sporting element, and they need momentum. And the only thing that gives you momentum is is a win, and it's it's the win that then persuades players that the manager knows what he's doing, that it's you know that it's working, that there's buy in there, and things can start to sort of um, can start to move. I mean. It, it was very interesting when Eddie, Eddie Howe came in, he was only focusing on these matches before January because waiting until January is waiting to, is, it, you know, it'll be too late by then. 
Yeah, there's this sense, as you say, of waiting till January, but the unlimited resources don't mean guaranteed success of, of bringing players in. I, I guess you're going to have that problem where because there's so much money, you could end up bringing in the wrong characters. You've got to bring in the right kind of characters for, for a relegation scrap and having all the money in the world doesn't necessarily do that. And plodding along till January is, isn't really an option. How, how do you feel about getting to there and, and, and transfer window? Well, they can't be adrift. I mean, I think that's I think that's the I think that's the point. And if they are adrift by then, it then throws up very interesting questions about how they handle it and what they do. Do they start preparing for for the next season? Do they stick to their plan and how that plays out? And I mean, they are theoretically the richest club in the world. That's not how they're being run. And uh, I mean, I suppose you know, desperation can always force people's hands. But certainly when when the takeover happened, they were talking about maybe spending 40, 50 million quid in January. That was how they uh how how they viewed it. But yeah, again, it'll be very interesting to see how how that plays out because other clubs can smell desperation a mile off. And so that puts a premium on 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 transfers and players. It's a very it's a crucial period this though, because as I say, if they're adrift by January, I think it's too late at that point. So what they have to do is stay in touch and then, you know, they need remedial work on on their defence in particular. But if they're still six, seven, eight points adrift by then, what 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 are the internal com- conversations? Is it we have to make the best of this and 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 sort of look to start again and reboot for the summer, or do they chase ch- chase something which may already be a lost cause? It's fascinating, really. I mean, I've watched uh, Newcastle absolutely smash QPR in the Championship six nil not that long ago. So, do you think it's it would be more beneficial to almost get the opportunity to? hit the reset button by being relegated and then build back up with this new project that's come in. I can absolutely see the logic of that argument, but you know perfectly well, if you've seen games in the championship, you know what a lottery it is. And mm. yes, Newcastle came up as champions last time under Rafa, but they only came up as champions on the last day of the season. And it was gruelling all the way through. It was gruelling. There were moments of tension and there are just no guarantees. So I think they have to do everything they 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 can within reason to stay up because rebuilding as a Premier League club is is I, I think is kind of easier than taking the gamble of the championship. However, I totally accept that point that if you go down, have a clear out, start again. Um, you know, I th- in some ways, in some ways that would be better, but that's providing that they come up after, you know, after one season. And they've done that. Yeah. They've done that twice. They've done that two times now. They did it twice under Ashley. They came up as champions. And, um, you know, they, in retrospect, they were very good, good seasons because they did allow a reset at the club. Um, a fat lot of good it's done them this last time, however, because they haven't built on it. But, you know, there was, that, but they also went down with momentum. You know, they went down with Benitez having taken charge for a few games, couldn't keep them up. But with him still as manager, I'll never forget that atmosphere on the last day of the season when they beat Spurs so convincingly and it persuaded him to stay the noise in the stadium. They went down. It was, you know, it was like a Carlsberg relegation that. That doesn't happen very often. And if Newcastle get to May, losing games, losing games, losing games, they won't have that same momentum. And it can can be very, very, it can be very, very difficult. 
So I wouldn't wish that that's upon them. If it happens, they have to try and make the best of it. I guess with the appointment of Eddie Howe, he's kind of the best of both in that he has kept a team up for three or four times with Bournemouth. He's also got that championship experience of building a side and getting them out of the championship if the worst happens and Newcastle do go down. What are your early impressions of Eddie Howe so far? Yeah, he said the right things. Uh, I mean, it was very dis- it was very disappointing for him and for, um, for everybody else that he wasn't there on the touchline for the Brentford match, that they didn't have that sort of immediate uh, lift, bounce. I mean, the first thing that you wanted from him was a bounce, with that sort of thing that... You know, you can't quite put your finger on why it happens, except it's a new person in the building. Um, they were crying out, you know, they were crying out for direction. They were crying out for a bit of discipline. They were crying out for um, sort of short, sharp messages and a bit of individual coaching. Those things take time to filter through. Newcastle don't have time. Um, yeah, it was it was very interesting hearing Amanda Stavely say on that first day that Eddie Howe is not afraid of relegation. So in other words... I mean, I took that to mean that, you know, this isn't an unusual situation that he finds himself in. And um, I, I agree. I think he was probably the best the best manager for this situation. Um, but it's a very, very difficult situation. People behind the scenes at the club, including in the dressing room, have, you know, have spoken um, with, you know, with, with, with enthusiasm about... Uh, the extra demands on the training ground. I mean, you have to remember, I always, it kind of makes me laugh a little bit. We're sort of hearing this debate about catch up, no catch up from new managers around the country at the minute. There is always that response to a new manager. The fact that a manager has been sacked or has left a club, it happens because results are going badly. When results are going badly, there's tension. When there's tension, there's less certainty. When there's less certainty, standards slip. And that includes things like fitness. It's not necessarily a reflection on that manager. But when somebody new comes in, everything immediately tightens up and lifts. I mean, it's part of that natural sort of process. But yeah, so far so good. But it doesn't really mean anything until Newcastle start winning matches. Well, we wish you all the best, George, for the rest of the season. Not that you have an impact on what happens to the Newcastle <laughs> results. But I, still, I still wish you all the thank best you. anyway. And thanks ever so much for coming on the podcast and chatting to us today. And thank you for your work with that Gary Spade piece because it, it was an amazing piece. Thank you. And a reminder that whatever you're going through, you can call the Samaritans in the UK free anytime from any phone on 116-123. Dan, there's still time to highlight some of the other great writing up on The Athletic right now. What have you been reading? Yeah, I read a piece yesterday on how many players are out of contract in the summer. It was a piece by Stuart James, Adam Crafton and some other writers of The Athletic as well. And it was just, it's incredible the standard of player that is out of contract this summer. I hadn't realised, you know, obviously COVID's played a part. Clubs are reining in the financials a little bit more than they would have been in previous years. But there's going to be some, a hell of a lot of good players moving clubs in the summer. I'm afraid the big boys are going to be sure to take advantage of it. So it's it's worth going in and reading that because you've got the likes of Mbappé. Yeah, there's going to be some serious movement in the summer transfer window and it's going to be a really, really interesting window. Yeah, I feel like we've just come from a pretty crazy summer window with Ronaldo, obviously, and yeah. Messi all being out of contract and, and moving on. So, yeah, just a, it's going to be more of the same, is it? We had Sergio Ramos as well over the summer, such sort of club stalwarts changing hands. You never really see that. So more madness really coming up, isn't it? Yeah, there's going to be Haaland as well. Obviously, he's always always in the news, always been linked with with all the big boys. 
Just a final reminder from us that you can read every article we've mentioned in today's podcast and so much more by signing up to The Athletic right now. You can save 33% on a full subscription today by visiting theathletic.com slash football pod. Thanks as always to you, Flo, and our thanks goes to George Colkin as well. And of course, thank you to all of you for listening. Get involved in the comments section. We'd love to hear your thoughts. And wherever you do get your podcasts, if you are enjoying the show, then if you could please leave us a review, that would be great. This was the Athletic Football Podcast. Mark Chapman and Matt Slater will be back with another episode tomorrow. So we hope you'll join us again. The Athletic.